0: Hey guys, Lehman Pascal here. Welcome to the Meta Podcast, an integral stage series that podcasts podcasters, broadcast broadcasters, and basically explores people trying to bring forth higher, deeper, or more developmentally transformative perspectives through online media. Today we're sitting down with Brandon Norgard to talk about his Enlightened Worldview Project, where it came from, what it is, and where it's going. I basically met Brandon through the emerging North American Bildung Network, which is an extension of the sort of metamodernish neo-Bildung movements in Europe, which pick up on a tradition of ongoing developmental education, operating across social, practical, intellectual, ecological, and personal dimensions of life, seeing them all as necessary and complementary. Bildung is one of those cousin communities that has a lot of resonances for people who are into integrative thinking and integrative being. So we're happy to have him here with us today. Hi, Brandon. Hello. Okay, I'm really looking forward to digging into some of the more philosophical aspects of your work, but let's start with a little background and overview. If people go to enlightenedworldview.com, what are they going to find there?
1: Well, they'll find that uh, we are building a uh, a community, uh, an organization that uh, we're going to try to help people with sense making. We're going to try to work on uh you know promoting some of these metamodern ideas in a way that people can understand uh because you know there's so much of this uh you've talked to a lot of people there's a lot of these integral podcasts metamodern podcasts a lot of academic work people getting into a lot of details you know reading all these uh, ken wilber books and various other books and i'm just trying to figure out a way that we can convey this to a broad audience that not really familiar with these these uh, ideas quite yet. Uh, so it's a, I'm trying to be a little bit of a funnel in the people who I'm working with as well, you know, trying to try to figure out a way to kind of evangelize uh, kind of a flattened metamodernism. And uh, so we, we've identified a few of these communities. You know there's a lot of the people who are coming from a traditional religious background. I found they're a little, little harder to reach and that there, there are some people out there who are doing excellent work in that uh, area. And uh, what, what, uh, what I'm, uh, I think uh, what we are finding a, a easier to reach are people who are coming from a, a scientific background or a tech background. And uh, I'm not saying that, that we're, we're just focused on that. It's just that uh, that's the easiest people who we're able to reach in the short term with, with our work uh, people who who are uh, thinking in terms of modern science and rationality is just everything. You know, we just need to double down on that. We need to do more of that, or they're just not familiar with uh, you know more holistic and integrative ways of thinking. and um, and we're also we're also trying to reach out to to people who who are, you know they, they haven't realized yet that uh, they can make their they can improve their lives, their community, their country, their world, you know, my embracing some of these, it doesn't need to be so extremely dense and complicated. You know, I don't need to read a hundred books in order to understand this, you know? And so we can help people sort out fact from fiction in the news and uh, embrace uh, modern science, although they they should still have a certain skepticism toward it because science isn't dogmatic, you know? Uh, But we want to promote scientific literacy We want to help people understand, uh, you know, people from, who come from different backgrounds in life, who, uh, you know, and part of this, what's really important is to understand uh, the inner world and the outer world, how we can integrate the inner world and the outer world, recognize your own thoughts and feelings, and be able to convey that better and understand the inner world of other people. And there, this is very important to, you know, the integral theory and metamodernism. And we're trying to figure out a way to to convey this to people, and uh, we we recognizing you know there is a sophistication spectrum. You got a a lot of people who are you know young adults, and they just aren't familiar with hardly any of this stuff. I mean, it, they maybe uh, graduated from college, you know, have a job and working in tech or science or you know some STEM field maybe, and uh, this stuff is, uh, pretty new to them. And so we're going to try to figure out a way to, uh, to convey some of this to them using, you know, like videos and podcasts. And, uh, I'm writing a book right now. And a lot of this material we think, uh, could be conveyed in, in, uh, podcasts and videos. I mean, we've got some ideas, for example, that we could bring together community leaders from, from different, uh, ideologies and work with them, use a lot of these, co- communicative t- uh, ideas and tactics and strategies that have already been developed you know and uh, work work out their issues. If they're willing to uh, to I think that some people would be willing to work with us on that and and also we think that uh, you know if we could find the uh, the way in which it would have the biggest impact, you know getting into these debates using these these uh, educational materials, do that um you know a lot of it has to do with this uh meta crisis that we're dealing with you know we have uh you know ecological financial health crisis political crisis and all that and uh, i think a lot of people can be uh inspired to to embrace a lot of these meta meta modern ideas integral ideas to improve their life their community and their country and their world.
0: Yeah, I I like the way you're thinking about it because there's, I mean, there's one argument where a lot of people have this sense you have to be this complex to get on the ride, so to speak, right? And there's some truth to that. There's a lot of things that you have to have spent the time developing in yourself to really understand what's being discussed. But on the other hand, how broadly could this be disseminated? We're not really sure. So you've got to try to take it as far as you can and have an eye toward maximum leverage and impact. So I appreciate that. Uh, one of the things I noticed at the site was uh, this prominent opportunity to sign up for the newsletter. And at first I was like, what? Newsletters still exist? How is that possible? <laughs> <laughs> but let's say somebody signs up for this newsletter. What uh, what kind of things are they going to receive?
1: Well, so this is where uh, I've been practicing writing to a broad audience, taking a lot of this stuff that I'm reading. And, you know, it, it, it is a monthly newsletter. It is also a way to try to inspire people to get involved so uh, when, I, when I write these, these newsletters, you know, it's, it's to say, you know, I've been reading a lot of this stuff. Here's what's been going on in the sense making and how to make sense of the news. And, you know, just uh, a certain kind of meta news analysis. And I'm trying to inspire, you know, participation. And it, it also is related to, if you, if you remember, you know, with the, uh, the Consilience Project. That's uh, Daniel Schmachtenberger and Zach, Zach Stein. And they created that uh, organization. To do the meta news analysis. And they admitted that initially they're going to be looking at the really uh, academic side of things, the really technical side of things, and figuring out, you know, writing these long articles that are, you know, probably only make sense to people who are already pretty deep into sociology and history and politics and science. And um, so. I was thinking, okay, but then Schmachtenberger also said, he he said that they were doing things in a really technical way to start out with because just imagine, you know, the the analogy is to an an image, you know, a really high density image that you can then uh, compress and and not lose, you know, the form of what it is trying to show, you know, in the image, but you can't really do the reverse. You you have that uh, high density image that can then be compressed, you know, without losing the, uh, what it's supposed to show. And he said eventually that with the consilience project, they wanted to be able to, to do that, to have, you know, educational materials for meta news analysis that could, could be, uh, to reach out to people who, uh, aren't specialists in a lot of those areas. And I was thinking, okay, well, we're already getting a head start on this. And, uh, and also the consilience project is intending to sunset as an organization within five years. And uh, we are building an organization that might live on past that. In fact, Schmackenberger and Zach Stein uh, said that that was kind of the idea. You know, they didn't want to be that organization because they didn't want uh, the Consilience Project to essentially become where it's just living for its own sake. Yeah. But we, we are thinking we're going to build uh, an organization that can still, you know, develop these educational materials and help people with sense making. And other, and other things, you know, not just, not just new sense-making, but the sense-making across different communities and is working in conjunction with metamodernism and uh, the building movement and uh, stuff like that.
0: Who, who else is working with you on this project right now?
1: A few people, you know, so uh, if you go to the website, you'll see we have a little video there and uh, we got together with some of my friends. So, I mean, a few years ago, I actually started this, uh, Sacramento politics and philosophy group. And there were some of the people who have been, we've been talking about political and philosophical issues for a while. And, uh, we got together and we said, we wanted to do something like this. We were trying to figure out, okay, how, what kind of organization can we build? How can we develop, you know, create a, a little video for it? And, uh, you'll see some of the people there. You, you, you had, uh, uh, Katie Scott, who was working on the video production and, uh, Jamie Zubo did the uh, the graphics and uh, Wendy Lautner and uh, Lee Chazen created uh, did uh, the uh, the script for the video and uh, initially they you know I said I didn't really want to be in the video and they were saying, you know because a lot of this is basically your idea brandon you should be the one to be in the video and and uh, narrate it and uh, at first I said, you yeah, know I don't really want to do it, but uh, that ended up being the consensus. so now now those people they were it got to the point though where, They were doing some work, I was paying them, and some of it was pro bono, and I kind of wasn't able to uh, continue that anymore, so it's kind of just me for now, Um, except uh, Lee Chazen is also, he's a member of the uh, uh, North American Building Network, along with yourself, and uh, so when when we get some more funding, I'll be able to bring some of those people back and some others as well.
0: Now, the... The idea of an enlightened worldview, it suggests some kind of shift in how we see and experience and appreciate reality. So it makes me kind of curious what shifts happened for you that led you to, you know, that new kind of appreciation or different kind of consciousness and then ultimately to this project.
1: Yeah, so let me unpack the, the notion of enlightened worldview. So I see enlightenment as... The process through which we uh, understand reality at a deeper level and it leads us to greater inner and outer peace. So it's an uncovering of of things. And I mean, there's more than one way to uh, to define it. You can have the you know, the Western notion, which it comes from the age of enlightenment, where uh, we were uh, getting away from superstition and dogma and toward, you know, more embrace of reason and science. And then there's the uh, the Eastern, you know, Buddhist notion that uh, comes from the uh, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And uh, ultimately, I think there's a convergence there. And uh, and also the, the notion of worldview is this is the, uh, the the most basic belief and orientation to the world. And there are several different aspects. that it. it's you know it's the, the epistemology and you know what exists, the ontology and your your ethical system and uh, you know there's different uh you could also call it you know the uh, cultural code that's a, it's an approximate uh similarity you know like with uh, lena rachel anderson was talking about that and you can also call it um a uh a thought perspective as thomas bjorkman was so i mean, I mean i'm reading their books and i'm re- uh realizing okay when they're when they're saying those words they're they're kind of meaning something similar to a, a worldview, or you can say maybe Uh, like a category of a worldview because a worldview might be more specific like Christianity or Islam or, you know, secular humanism or something like that. And the idea is if we can have a more enlightened worldview, because enlightenment isn't something you either have or or don't have. It's more of a dimmer switch and we are all becoming more enlightened or perhaps less enlightened, depending on the certain circumstances. And uh, we are seeking, you know, more enlightenment to not only uh, grasp uh, reality better and understand our, ourselves better, but to also have more peace through that. And we can find more enlightenment uh, by uh, uh, recognizing a lot of things, including, uh, I, I would say, not only an embrace of science and reason, but also uh, the, the thoughts and feelings, your own thoughts and feelings, and life world and, and grasping the other people's life world and society through you know things like her, um, phenomenology, hermeneutics, uh, deep history, things like that, and there's uh, you know there's a convergence with that, and a lot of it comes from uh, integral theory. Um, I uh, some of some of what I, I think we can do is to be more systematic about about this because some some phenomenology I think can actually be more scientific, and be uh, uh, let give more legitimacy. To phenomenology as integrated with objective science, and I don't expect that sort of a thing to be, uh, you know, understood or or brought out to people from a broad audience. But some of the the, the sense makers who I think we need more like kind of expert set sense makers who can guide people through this. You know, it's it's this is something we need to to recognize th- for people throughout their adult life that if we have like you know we already have community leaders, we have you know spiritual leaders, we should have Sense makers in in these communities, people who are familiar with these these uh, sense making processes and uh, they can guide people through that. They can, uh, you know, be familiar with a lot of the communication tactics and strategies that have been developed recently. You know, there's there's quite a bit out there with, you know, circling and authentic relating and, and stuff like that.
0: Okay. So there's a, there's a number of concepts in that, that I would love to circle back to. Um, But what's your, you know, what's your personal history with this? How did you come to see the world this way and consider that these things are important?
1: Well, for one thing, I think I mentioned that meetup group and I I, uh, was started to, to do that because, you know, well, I came from a religious background and I came to realize, well, that's not really working for me anymore. It's, Similar to Brendan Graham Dempsey, who you had on a couple weeks ago, and he was giving his story of that, you know, and uh, and then I was also realizing that there were there were uh, things, a- aspects of the secular humanist worldview that didn't answer. There are certain aspects of life that certain phenomena that were not captured with that. So I was, I was trying to figure that out, and I, I uh, started attending a lot of these uh philosophy discussions and a lot of it came out from that i'm also also working in uh uh uh, as a software engineer for quite a number of years in network management and uh, i could i I could actually kind of see understanding these these networks and how they come together and there's in recent years there's been a uh i mean i guess i i'm not super into it anymore but there was um uh, development of this, uh, ability to monitor networks and like kind of have, uh, an, an auto for how the virtualization of these networks come together. And I'm, uh, this is a big thing recently within, in cognitive science and sociology is how there is an auto not only of, of relevance realization for your, your psychology. Because you you take in so much information all the time, you can, you know you 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 have uh, the autopoesis is the automatic way in which you figure out what is relevant. and there's no real algorithm for that. It's just whatever however you figure out how to survive in this world and how to thrive. And uh, similarly, we actually made computer networks that could do that, computers that could do that, and they could create these virtualizations. Uh, layers across multiple computers, which were, you know, these nebulous entities that would just appear and change. And that's similar to how society works. You know, those are groupings of people in these communities that automatically create themselves and change themselves. And there are layers and, you know, with stacks on top of them. You know, the stack being essentially where you have a nested layers of, of these communities so I, I could see how there was there were similarities there, and it was it was really as I, as we were developing this technology, I could, it made me understand psychology better and and sociology better, and uh, you know reading a lot of these books deal, and understanding that you know there's this meta crisis going on, and I got some ideas for how we could uh, convey a lot of these ideas to people you know from uh, from a, a fairly broad audience you know.
0: Do you think the public um, needs and is capable of having a deeper understanding of network behavior and inter-network interactions?
1: Well, well, no, actually, um, I guess I'll admit that a lot of this stuff that we're developing is to try to help, uh, you know, the sense maker uh, people who, who would be guys toward, toward a broader audience. They need to be trained in how to do that. And uh, but then... They, you don't really need to explain all the nitty gritty details to, to common people. You just need to understand that. Now, now the truth is, though, I think some of it can be understood by a pretty broad audience. You, ha- you have, for example, uh, Greg Henriquez and uh, his collaborations with other people, including John Verbeke, and they, if you go to uh, unifiedtheoryofknowledge.org, I think that's the website where Henriquez is actually reduced psychology, right? He didn't really reduce it. But he just said, here's, here's the key ideas for how the mind works. And you can, you could actually see, you know, you don't have to be an expert at it to understand those graphics, those diagrams for how that works. You know, you have, uh, and, and it brings together all these different theories. It brings together a lot of these different theories of, uh, and traditions of psychology. And, you know, it would actually be pretty cool if we had something like that for psych- sociology and you don't have to be an expert you know and and, and uh, economics and politics there are so, those are so ideological but those really do derive from psycho- sociology and ultimately derive from psychology and if we i think that if we had some some just uh, basic key ideas for how that works we can help ourselves in, in our orientation toward our community and having better sense-making as well. And it doesn't have to be extremely complicated. We don't have to read 50 books. We don't have to read, you know, academic journals constantly. We also don't have to, It's. it's we don't have to just say, well, it's just ideology, or I'm just a libertarian or an anarchist or, or a, you know, a Marxist or whatever. Some of those ideologies have been pretty much debunked, and they just don't make any sense in terms of what we now know about from, psychology, and how the sociology, how the social sciences emerged from that.
0: Yeah, I um, I definitely encouraged Greg to focus more on sociology the last time I spoke with him, and I think that the visual structural depictions, I think, are going to end up having a really broad reach, uh, much broader than um, dense verbal explications of the things we're talking about. Um, one of the things I noticed on the website was sort of proposed and upcoming projects, you say there's going to be a book series, a podcast series and a video series. And although you're working on it now, if you had more resources, you'd be able to pay more people to be involved. But I'm kind of curious, um, like what you think those projects are going to look like. And also, you know, um, what would it mean for people to help you out with that? What kind of collaborators are you looking for? And how could they get involved if they wanted to?
1: Yeah, so I, I'm actually working on a book right now, and uh, I, I I do have uh, envisioned that there could be a book series. Now, this is a very uh, broadly collaborative project. Uh, it, the idea is to try to condense uh, a lot of a lot of books that are out there into you know just like kind of a, a manual for. Right now, this just that's the the book that I'm working on is a sense making manual that can be used to help train sense makers. But then we could also have um, a certain version of that that can be uh, you know less philosophical and more understandable to to a broader audience probably still i mean I think that um, I can envision uh, creating a version that would that would be for you know uh, people who are you know in their 20s or 30s primarily and also you know maybe college students um, and then and then if you once we could get a version like that out we could say okay well how do we how do we make this available to, to high school students as, as well, you know? And, uh, so that, that's kind of the, that's kind of the, 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 idea. And if we were to come out with another volume, I, we have some ideas for how to, you know, condense a lot of the, the social sciences uh, that we were talking about, you know, uh, there are some books that are already out there on, on these subjects that I was thinking about writing about. So I'm not sure how much of it is, uh, is going to be uh, totally necessary. But I, I do think that we don't have, the book that I'm writing, I don't see it out there. So that's why I'm motivated to, mm. to write it. You know, it's uh, it's a sense-making manual and, and also to, uh, you know, understand how phenomenology can be more scientific and how to go through that using an adaptation of the all quadrants, all levels, all qual model. And uh, so we also, uh, now if we were to create like podcasts, I think I had mentioned some of this earlier. We 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 would have these podcasts to explain these sense-making processes, and if we could also bring together community leaders from different communities with different ideologies, and use these strategies to try to get them to understand each other at a deeper level. That and also the, if we were to create videos, I think that we could we could find ways of visualizing this, you know. A lot of these a lot of these ideas you know into fairly short videos you know of a, just a few minutes
0: i read uh one of your blog articles in which you quoted zen master hakuin which i love <laughs> because i i think he's a really unique irascible character and i enjoy his emphasis on really trying to solve koans to produce kenjo experience which is not always emphasized in the zen tradition but it leads me to want to circle back to um Your investigation into what enlightenment is. Um, I feel a lot of uh, resonance on that topic because I've also tried to uh, answer for myself at least what enlightenment is such that it could apply both to um, spiritual states, to some kind of ongoing human maturation, but also to the kind of broad cultural shifts that might be epitomized by the age of enlightenment. And I don't want to get too deep into my own model, but I'm curious um, what made you, like what makes anyone feel like they need to have a broad definition of enlightenment?
1: You know, that's interesting because when people talk about these terms, you know, they occasionally even even common people people who aren't, uh, you know, specialists in, in this or that, will occasionally get onto these, these terms like enlightenment or worldview. And, you know, there isn't always an overlap across that if we can kind of unpack that we can have a better way of communicating across different cultures and you know that enlightenment is one thing you know and when people talk about that in the western tradition they don't always mean the same thing or usually don't mean the same thing as in the eastern tradition but we actually do we can find a convergence across different cultures by finding you know a certain common denominator across that and uh, that's 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 one word. You know, there's other, there's other other terms that I, I like to to look at and unpack and and recognize that they do they are cross cultural. And uh, so so the um, if we can get into enlightenment here, I can see that it uh, the word means you know well it's a state of being enlightened. But what does enlightenment mean? It's uh, it could be uh, to give intellectual or spiritual light to. Instruct, impart knowledge to. We can go with uh, Kant's definition, which is uh, a man's emergence from self-incurred immaturity. And uh, but then you can you can look at uh, you know what etym- etymologically what's going on is we're talking about light being imparted with light, and the light is symbolizes you know knowledge or wisdom coming in. you are, you are grasping things and uh it is also it doesn't it, it's uh, some people gain knowledge and it leads them to you know a certain despair but this is where the knowledge the wisdom leads you to have a more more peaceful and so you you can you can grasp reality and you can be at peace with it so that that is i think that's what cuts across the eastern and western notions And if we can look at, you know, these words in that way and we can recognize, well, there is a common denominator across, you know, the Eastern and the Western or uh, in various other aspects of life as well. Then we can find a a, we can recognize that we are talking about similar things. We can find build bridges across people from different cultures. So that's one of the ways that I want to I think we should go about this. And uh, I mean, admittedly, language, you know, doesn't, these words don't necessarily have any inherent meaning and, and there isn't, you know, maybe there isn't always a common denominator across different con- people's different conceptions of, the, of words, but, but I want to search for that. I want to see if we can find that and focus on that, you know, it's a little bit like a, a Venn diagram with two circles that interse- intersect, I'm looking at what is that intersection.
0: So, yeah, so that this is I one
1: way that. in which we can build communities, build build bridges across different communities.
0: I think these are really important intellectual challenges to set for ourselves going forward. I, I, I connect mine very closely to yours. I mean, I tend to think of the light as a coherence, as a form of harmonious connecting the experience of which permanently or temporarily exceeds the conventional set of cognitive objects that we're beholding. And that can be, in a moment it can be over your lifetime or it can be in some kind of cultural phase shift. Um, curious you've mentioned uh Henriquez, you've mentioned Verveke. Uh, who else has uh, influenced or contributed to your thinking on these topics?
1: Oh yeah, we well, we got to mention uh Lena Rachel Anderson and uh the uh there's quite a few people who who are no longer with us from from generations ago who who uh his wisdom really had a lot of influence on me including uh Husserl Diltai and uh you know reluctantly we got to admit uh, uh uh Heidegger and um oh <laughs> uh, yeah his name comes up a lot you know I actually I like uh Husserl quite a bit and uh you know there's obviously uh, we can mention Ken Wilber so so uh you know I think that. Um, one thing that i i really like actually i think that husserl is is a little bit under underrated you know that's kind of my feeling is because he he wanted to figure out how we could have a science to understand the inner world and connect it with the outer world and uh so then you needed you needed uh subsequent uh thinkers to uh to address some of his shortcomings but now i think we can go back and we can resurrect some of his ideas you know
0: yeah, I wanted to dig into that a bit more because he's, Husserl is not widely read anymore. Um, but in your work, it seems like you have a very strong appreciation for both phenomenology and existentialism. So I'm curious like, what those terms mean to you, what excites you about them, and what is it that makes you feel that they have a, an untapped utility going forward?
1: Well, yeah. There is such, so so much power in science and being able to replicate, you know, to, to gather evidence, to observe, to come up with hypotheses and to, to test it and to uh, invite others to, to test that as well. And I was thinking, how could we have anything close to that model to, to help us build better social cohesion? And address the the meta crisis because you know we, there is a little bit of a convergence between I'm sorry a divergence between the Enlightenment and uh, the uh, Romanticism and uh, so there's been some attempts to bring it to bring them together to reconverge that and I think that's what this Enlightenment 2.0 is going to be but how do we do that you you uh, we could start with you know the, the the four quadrants where where phenomenology is one of is in the upper left and the lower left as well could could be a certain can understood to be a certain kind of phenomenology if we look at uh the work of gadamer in hermeneutics you know that is the uh interpretation across uh you know social situations being able to, to understand someone's inner world by recognizing your inner world so that's in the lower left and the implication
0: uh, of a shared or mutual phenomenology of some
1: yes yes and uh so so how do we go about that how can we uh if we if we were to be more systematic about this is there any way that we can and i've had a bunch of i've had discussions with some people about this some of whom uh, you know, they said it's not scientific. Uh, you shouldn't use the word science. Some, and in fact, I actually had some or some early uh, versions of my uh, presentations where I said, "Oh, it's science-like," or maybe you know a little bit scientific. Uh, some people actually wanted said that I should fully embrace that it's scientific and just try to expand the boundaries of what science is. So actually, though, I looked at what what is science what what is science i tried to break it apart into different you know these uh, epistemic dimensions um in a in a universal uh under uh, definition of science that everybody would agree with and it turns out it's it's not just based on you know the hypothetical deductive model of g- gathering evidence and test testing and stuff um, you always need to use the past to interpret the present use the present to interpret the past So that's why, for example, uh, evolutionary biology is a science. And uh, so is astronomy. You know, those are not reproducible. So you are using that interpretation. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. And and another thing is that uh, this is where, you know, Henriquez's work comes in because there's a lot of within uh, psychology, you actually do have phenomenology being important to that in the mind plane of existence, and then also the, uh, the social plane, you know, with the social sciences, uh, with uh, economics and, uh, you know, politics. There, there is so much of the inner world that you have to be able to understand to interpret the data that you're looking at, the objective data. And uh, so if we could fully embrace phenomenology and have it work in a way that is more testable and more reproducible. Um, it may never be, a, you know, a full science, but I think I see. I see science as a spectrum. It doesn't just go into oh, you you have either full science or you have you know just bullshit, which is a lot of what a lot of people out there think that way. So I'm trying to expand people's minds to say, okay, well, phenomenology can be like a soft science, which you know economics and politics are already political science are already kind of soft, but that's all right. There's there it's not just guesswork dealing with the the complexity of these these things, uh, there are ways of, of getting evidence-based and reliable interpretations and, uh, and being able to have, uh, you know, workable design interventions for improving our political, economic, cultural situation. And we need to use our interpretation of, uh, of our inner world for that. I mean, in the inner world of, uh, of the people we inhabit the earth with, you know? And I think yeah, we can do that in a reliable way.
0: I think that's right, and I, I think it. in you know, in the integral model, I think it pertains to something like the difference between stages and quadrants, because there are a lot of people who feel like they're very pro-science, or who feel like they're strong critics of science, but by science they mean basically everything integral would call the upper right quadrant, you know, external material phenomenon. But if we think of it as a as a level of sophistication in sense-making that was very profitably applied to matter (laughs) uh, and some other things, then we could think that we want to apply the same degree of sophistication, at least in making sense of our internal and shared processes to be be as capable as science is in terms of subjective and intersubjective experience so that those things can Start to coordinate with each other to produce a richer kind of civilization.
1: Yeah, indeed. And what, one thing, actually, also uh, when we talked uh, last time, I, I realized that uh, you know. So I was saying, okay, we can we can identify these different kinds of phenomenology and how they integrate with objective science. And I had said, okay, well, there's the transcendental phenomenology, the existential, and the hermeneutic. So I, I saw that. So that was the existential is kind of like the, the thinking fast version of the upper left quadrant. You know, that's the, that's the personal, uh, you know, singular or the inner sing, uh, interior singular. Uh, you know, the thinking fast is is the, uh, you know, Daniel Kahneman's uh, understanding of you, know, you essentially have, there's so much going on inside your mind that you don't even think about. But there is a way in which you can tune it so that it works better. You can't say that everything's going to be. This is Heidegger's criticism of of, of Husserl is that because Husserl said, well, we can we can uh, you know meditate on everything on, on how everything appears to us and 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 uh, be able to to recognize how that's all constituted. Well, that's the transcendental phenomenology. But there's some of it, so much of it that is embodied and pre-rational. but we can tune that through existential phenomenology. So those that correspond to the thinking fast and slow in that upper left quadrant. Um, and then I said, okay, well, the, the hermeneutic is in the lower left quadrant. And then you pointed out, well, hold on, there should be a thinking fast and slow there as well. And I read a little more, okay, so after that, I was r- realizing, well, yes, but what I was working on, it wasn't quite orthogonal in that regard. Uh, I read a little more uh, Husserl and I re- realized that he actually had the, the thinking fast or the thinking thinking slow version of the lower left quadrant. So that's a uh, Gautamer is the thinking fast version of the, of that, the hermeneutic. That's the, if you're actually inter- interacting with someone like we're doing right now, you have so much of this automatic understanding of empathy, but then there's a slower version of that where, which is how you interpret broadly, you know, people and ideas and, and cultures and history where, where you're not directly interacting with them. And I think that's what, that's what Husserl was doing in the crisis of European sciences. And that's what we really, that's one thing that we're, we're kind of missing. Um, and I think that uh, Henriquez and, and uh, uh, Verbeke were, were they've been talking about some of these important ideas recently. I don't remember them mentioning that it can, kind of came from Husserl, but they are saying that, you know, essentially Galileo in his, uh, his uh, creation of modern science, he, he had said we're, we're just going to seize on certain things that we can understand objectively and that would be the the material cause and the uh the effective cause of of you know what's going on when when we do these experience experiments but then you you, you have a you know the formal cause and the uh the final cause as well and those are things that you can understand That's that. Those are are embedded within people's ideologies with the way people think, and those develop. There you can understand how those develop over time by looking at history. So that is actually really important to to the process of of uh, you know this greater integral thinking that we're we're doing here. We need to we need to think in terms of those quadrants, you know, and also the thinking fast and slow within them. And and I think that if we if we can actually I don't want to be mean that we need to be too systematic about this, but if we could check all four of those boxes within the the left quadrant, that the thinking fast and the thinking slow for each of those, then we can actually have a much better way of interpreting our objective data.
0: So one side of this is how do we think about things? What's our worldview? And another side of this is what are the actual practices people can engage in that will change them, make us better phenomenologists, make us better sense makers relative to our personal experience, but also to our experience of each other and our ability to make the world comprehensible to us. So what are some of the practices that you're thinking about in regards to these things?
1: I, I think that uh, i kind of been talking about how we can train sense makers you know to correspond to you know different people uh, the uh, the community. We already have community leaders in in these places that are you know they they might be seizing upon uh, you know tradition or or uh, you know some sort of uh, political ideology and those that's what passes for community leaders right. in in so many places and. You know, we have like talking heads on TV and, you know, podcasts and stuff. People, they're just trying to rile, rile, rile people up into whatever, you know, preconceived notions. So we, if we can have, uh, you know, better sense maker com- community leaders, then, then that's, that's really, really important. Mm-hmm. And what are some of the practices that we can do, we can use? Um, and uh, we, we can definitely seize upon the work that a lot of people out there have already been doing. And um, but just to just to kind of su- sum, summarize some of it, I, I think that we can we can we can use recognize, you know, there, there I think there's a ways in which we can have some of this quadrants notion or like the thinking fast and slow within these quadrants. And we can actually reduce it to, you know, when you're looking at this, when you're looking at a news report, think about A, B, C, D. You know, and then there's a ways of doing that, I think. Uh, so I, 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 ha, I was thinking, okay, so like for example, with the hypothetical deductive mo- model, this is, the, the people have come up with graphics to show how simple it is. You know, oh, you, you, you look, do some observations, you interpret the data, you, you know, uh, come up with a, a, a hypothesis and you reproduce it, invite others to reproduce it. Could we do something like that for sense-making? Because I think that, you know, you've you recognized what are you feeling and uh, what are you thinking? And, you know, if you were to meditate on this, how, how, does, that, how does that appear to you? So, so there's a ways I think we can rec- get people to think about, you know, the thinking fast and slow of their inner world and the thinking fast and slow of other people's inner world. And that essentially is what I'm talking about with the upper left quadrant, the lower left quadrant. And the thinking fast and slow for each of these. There's ways, I think, that we could convey this to people that is understandable to, to a pretty broad audience. And then you also say, okay, and then you're also going to bring in, of course, the objective data, the scientific data. But you need to have all of those connected. And the, the scientific data, of, uh, of course, the objective data, that's in the, the right quadrants. So I think that you know you could actually come up with these sort of processes or a little like a diagram, like imagine it being a you know, a cycle, like you're here on the cycle, move to here, move to here. And then, you know, and then there's a, a little bit of a map, you know, I I just think that these sort of educational materials can kind of guide people to do that, to make sure that there aren't important aspects of the sense-making process that they they aren't missing.
0: Yeah. I think there's real value in clarifying the practices, both in terms of, uh, how those dynamics to explain what they are and how they work really underwrites a lot of our philosophical perspective on what's going on and is very engaging for people who aren't sure they need to change their opinion of the world, but would definitely like to personally get better at being able to do things through certain practices. And and I'm sure a lot of that will be in your book when it comes out. But uh, your first point, which is there's already a lot of people in different communities who are aware of and overseeing different kinds of practices i thought that was very important because how shall i say this you know in that last american election cycle i heard pete Buttigieg, who i often have problems with uh but he said something very interesting in response to a question about you know when the cutoff for abortion should be and his answer was it's not really about when it's about who it's, it's going to be a difficult decision. Should that difficult decision be made by the parents or by the government? And I thought there's a really interesting principle in there is that many times when we're thinking of what should be done or how should it be done or when should it be done, we really should be thinking about who should make that decision because we don't have to figure it all out and decide on everything personally. We might just need to figure out who is a good decider in that regard and then empower them to do that.
1: Well, yeah. So, and and you just uh, um, mentioned, you know, a uh, kind of specific political issue that can sometimes be a little bit of a landmine, and that's actually one of the things that I think that we can use better sense making to kind of uh, recognize the context of this, these sort of issues. Um, you know, so there are people who who uh, have uh, they maintain their their wealth and privilege by rat by uh, you know inciting. Uh, you know, fear and anger among among people by by appealing to these sort of uh, you know landmine issues, and there are ways of being more dispassionate about that and recognizing that there are you know these moral absolutes that we've been we've been taught to many of us you know and myself included I, I absolutely was uh, you know taught you know <laughs> for this abortion issue in in particular was. Uh, you know, very much an absolutist type of thing, and uh, but but uh, to be more you know dispassionate and recognize that that uh, there there are so many different contextual factors that you should consider, and you can have uh, more nuanced positions about this, and uh, and also the, to consider you know well it's actually one really important thing is that we should recognize that our our morality and our you know bioethics comes from uh, consciousness we understand our consciousness because we have to have this tendency in some cases especially like if you're brought up in you know uh you know traditional uh religious background is to imagine uh conscious entities that you know to be honest like is it is that person really exist? Is there is that really there and um uh, now that's actually uh, this is a uh, one of the more difficult aspects of this uh sense making process of trying to um, you know, improve sense making across the the population in general. Is that there's there's a lot of reliance on uh, uh, religion and dogma, and uh, so that that is that is actually pretty difficult. It has gotten to the point, though, I think, where there there aren't really. It doesn't seem that there are quite as many people who are really seriously dogmatically religious. Um, I mean, that was with the last uh, last few years, with you know the People who are conservative—they don't seem to be driven by religion as much. It seems to be, you know, protecting their community, their their identity, or their traditional, you know, ways of life. And so that's that's a lot more important. Sometimes they will they will um, reach for or uh, rest on religious uh, ideas, you know, as as a, a convenient way of justifying something that they kind of already wanted to believe but you, you can kind of see that they're, that they're they don't a lot of them don't seem to really believe in the religion that much anymore so we, we can that's one way to it's an important way to understand the, the inner world of these people uh who come from different backgrounds different ideologies and and build these bridges is to understand what's motivating what's genuinely motivating
0: yeah, I think a lot, of, uh, a lot of people, regardless of whether they think about themselves as belonging to a particular religious traditional background, are looking for either some new way of making meaning or a way to make more meaning out of the tradition that they have that might feel insufficient or a little bit hollow compared to what they hope it could be. And obviously, a lot of that energy these days is getting channeled into politics and That's a tricky area. Like you say, it's not just tricky because there are um, flashpoint issues like abortion. It's tricky because we don't know exactly how to make adaptive ethical sense of a political environment or whether or not we even should. Uh, It seems to me that the rate of acceleration and the accumulation of our very worrying economic, informational and ecological trends is something that isn't going to be transformed in time only by experimental communities and philosophical startups and new ways of thinking and organizing. At the same time, we have to be trying to make changes urgently at large scale, which involves politics, even though we've seen politics fail a million times. So, you know, what's your sense of where people's uh, political engagement needs to be in order to complement the kinds of changes you would like the enlightened worldview to bring about?
1: Well, you know, I when I talk to people about politics, and I say, you know, I'm I'm working on this project, and it has some connections. It can have connections to to politics or to theology, even though although it's uh, primarily based, uh, you know, on sense making and and a more general, like uh, sociological orientation. Um, But if I say that there are implications for improving the political climate, I I, in, in a lot of cases, I get people saying, "Well, there's there's nothing you can do there. People are on." one side or the other side, you're on the blue team, you're on the red team. And, uh, you know, I guess you in, in Canada there, you guys maybe have a similar sort of thing, you know? Uh, it's unfortunate that, uh, you know, a lot of the world has to think that, uh, well, you know, they have to care so much about US politics, but it, indeed it does have implications for, for everyone. It has an impact everywhere uh, because the US is so so powerful. Um, but the, I, I think it's actually a, a, a bad way to think about things that you are either on this team or that team, you know, the, uh, the, the, the way to actually think about it is that there, there, there are constant movements here and changes there's dynamic forces. And you know, that one of the biggest problems actually is that you have so much wealth concentrated in so few hands and they seem to be, some of them seem to be kind of relentlessly wanting to brainwash just enough of the population to to get whatever they want you know and that's uh i mean we, we saw that uh the news report came out about uh some of the richest people in the world not paying taxes and uh you know you have just uh, you know what maybe 150 people in in the u.s controlling like half the wealth i'm not exactly sure the numbers there but you have a lot of people who are who are quite poor you know Tens of millions. Of, so, so how are we going to deal with this? And, and that's actually one of the important things that we, we want to do is to have different forms of sense making. You want you want to have you know literacy, uh, media literacy. You want to have uh, scientific literacy and power literacy. Understanding who who genuinely has the power, and, and what who is who is making you know these uh, these news reports and what are what are their interests. Um, so if you can if you can recognize that. Then I think that we can actually. Also, another another important thing is that we tend to think people tend to think, well, this is the political system we have, and it could, that's just the way things are. You know, we have uh, what the Electoral College, we have the Senate, which uh, in the U.S. is are pretty anachronistic institutions that give some people a lot more power than others. I'm here in California, and we have far less representational power than people in you know West Virginia. And I'm, I'm really just saying that we should have equal representational rights. The, the way that the Constitution is, uh, you know, it was created for a purpose in that time. And history has plenty of examples of power sharing agreements that were created at a certain time for a certain purpose that made sense at the time, but then later made no sense and needed to be reevaluated. And that's what's going on now, I think, especially with you, you see a lot of these people becoming more ingrained into their, you know, uh, far right ideology or other kinds of some people getting, you know, far left ideology. There, There's just um, it's a lot of frustration out there and people are confused about it. And I think that we can reevaluate, you know, our constitution and also reevaluate how we go about, you know, a more global Cooperative governance, which the uh, it certainly doesn't mean that we're going to have anything like a top-down global government or anything of the sort. It just means we're going to we, we should probably be more you know multilateral in in our orientation with different important areas of the world. We also shouldn't concede or accept that some places in the world are authoritarian. You know, we I think that uh, it's unfortunate that the COVID crisis is. Partially, the result of there being an authoritarian government in China and that's it's a threat to the world that we that things that things work that way and uh, of course this is not at all against the the Chinese people but the Chinese government being so authoritarian I don't know if they're listening now but they (laughs) probably don't give a shit about me or what I say but uh that's that's actually one of the things that we we should do is have this uh, we could recognize our our not only the local community our national uh, you know political orientation but also the, the world as a whole and if we do that we should should, should try to encourage a uh, better governance and accountability in every major region of the world if we have if we allow for authoritarianism or anti-democratic governance in you know places like China that's a threat to everybody
0: There's definitely this um, question about whether the structures we've set up socially, the procedures and protocols we have are able to agilely make sense of the world and do something about it. Do our voting procedures work? Does our representational system work? Does our media system work? So we have to address all of those as if they were sense-making mechanisms. But I'm curious about something else, which is, um, do you think it's feasible say, at some point in the not too distant future to be able to um, produce a set of principles whereby you could look at your major political options in any given political contest and make a pretty good decision about which of them has made more sense of the actual world and the actual mechanisms for causing change so that an enlightened worldview project could say, oh, this one in this case, or this one in this case. You know,
1: I was thinking about that, and uh, that would actually be difficult. Uh, I know that we want to encourage people to understand sense-making, and sense-making principles, making better sense of major uh, news events, things, uh, matters of public debate, and if you, as it, as it would, um, come to you know a a political race where one candidate is spouting out a whole bunch of bullshit relentlessly unapologetically and the other one is you know only bullshitting about half the time that that seems like you'd probably want to vote for that person right um but then we really want to be above the fray with this uh, enlightened worldview project we we would not actually get into a you know political office or uh ra- political races and that sort in that form we would just try to help people understand and make make better sense of major news events and uh, be able to evaluate the claims made by these public officials and uh, people running for public office.
0: Yeah, there's a y- y- I don't think you want to take the risk of turning off all, you know, half the people in a very polarized ecosystem. Uh, also, you never know like a person who spouts bullshit only half the time might be participating in a process that causes greater damage over the longer term. But it's really difficult to adjudicate those things.
1: And I also think that there's plenty of room for people to be, you know, on the conservative side mm-hmm. uh, or the, you know, progressive liberal side. There's plenty of room for that, but there are certain things that are a little too out there to be entirely unscientific. And, and this is where if we have an integral science that incorporates phenomenology, you know, s- psychology, sociology, we can see that certain things like anarchism or, or, you know, just uh, doctrinaire Marxism are just, just not accurate at, at all. There's plenty of room though to be on the conservative side. There's plenty of room to be on the, on the progressive side.
0: And, I think that's uh, where the I, notion of vertical development comes in and plays a big role, right? Like we were talking about with phenomenology, you could have a better phenomenology. And you think, well, great, then I could have a better liberalism. I could have a better conservatism. It might even be that some of the people who self-identify as anarchists have a very sophisticated take that is not shared by 98% of the other self-identified <laughs> anarchists. So we, we really have to include that other dimension of sophistication all the time. Yeah. One of the things that came up a lot in the mission statements that were scattered throughout the website and the videos is the notion of empathy. There's a real mm-hmm. push toward empathy there, and that's a big topic. So I guess I want to like, probe into it sort of generally. What, what is it you mean by empathy? What are the practices you think that increase empathy? And is there a risk of being too empathic or too focused on empathy as an outcome of processes?
1: Yeah, so the empathy is recognizing the thoughts, feelings, uh, you know, desires, and, and personal history of the people that you interact with, people in, and whose life is in, uh, interwoven with your own, which uh, at different levels, that's your community, your nation, the entire world, and uh, recognizing that uh, you know, there are limits to it because some people don't have any empathy. Some people are, are sociopaths or psychopaths and uh, use their their power to, you know, relentlessly lie to people, you know, for their own gain. So honestly, for those people, I don't think you need to have any empathy. You know, the, the cult leaders out there, not to name any names. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I think that, I'm sorry, there was another aspect of that question that, you, you know, what was it?
0: Yeah, well, um yeah. What are the types of practices you think cultivate empathy?
1: Yeah, you know, so this is something I've been working on uh, quite a bit um, or trying to understand. There's people who really specialize in various different aspects of this, and I'm trying to 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 understand those so we can bring them together into this this manual so that you know you shouldn't have to uh, you know study this for you know fifty years or ten years to to understand it. So the, the, you have, for example, the circling practice of, uh, you know, guys saying stock and, and uh, some, some others, and um, you have uh, authentic relating of uh, Sarah Ness. And, um, and then you also have, I think that the, this, that, and those, those would, I think in, in, in uh, depending on, on the practice, you know, they make sense in the context of, of actual, Person-to-person contact, but then there's other empathetic practices that we need to apply to people who we don't actually directly see, and we we just need to understand their their where they're coming from, their ideology, their perspectives in life, and the perspective isn't just the visual field; it's the the subset of your life world that it can be activated or uh, through through certain you know terms or ideas, certain concepts that we're talking about. So I'm coming from this perspective on, you know, the border or whatever, you know, someone else has an entirely different perspective because of their history, uh, or or their community on that, What 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 is activated, you know, all the, the different thoughts and feelings that are activated from that. So we can have that empathy, and we can try to find, you know, some common ground with them.
0: Do you think political correctness is sort of a an inhibition when it comes to sense-making and empathy in the sense that it precludes people from sharing a lot of troubling um, perspectives and insights and therefore precludes them entering more authentically into relationship with others and providing other people with, you know, a better sense of where they're coming from. You know, is there a sense in which um, sort of well-behaved, well-educated people, are reluctant to enter into exchanges that are energized enough to really heart connect with somebody who seems to hold a very different perspective.
1: Yeah, so there's been a lot of people talking about this uh, you know recently. You have the, the anti-woke movement, you know? <laughs> so wokeness is under actually that is making a, a uh, very uh, important point. Of of uh, understanding people's inner world and where they're coming from. Now, the uh kind of it, it came a little bit, I think, in a kind of a postmodern orientation where that's all you need to worry care about is you need to you need to focus on especially for uh people who come from communities or uh identities that have been um historically disadvantaged, you know. So you need to really care about that. When you when you when you bring that to the forefront and you don't also consider the objective factors that can, you know, in many cases, uh, these people's uh, uh, concerns or this uh, drive for political correctness, it can be, uh, you know, counterproductive or irrational. So then you have, uh, you know, guys like Brett Weinstein, you know, uh, being in and Jordan Peterson in the uh, kind of the anti-woke movement. But uh, you don't want to go too far in that. Uh, you, you, I think that, you um, you want to recognize that inner world, but also have the ability to to put it into context. And, and in fact, this is actually something I've been talking with some people recently about, because I think that, uh, you know, you you have, in some cases, you do want to incorporate different perspectives together in a dialectical way. And this is where you are, your conception of reality takes on the is integrated with the perspective of someone else and then you 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 grasp that at a a more deep level you know and um that uh but then sometimes you actually you want to have uh you know just for example you don't want to do that all the time you know because just for example let's say uh with with regard to human rights and someone else maybe they come from a culture that doesn't uh, respect human rights quite as well. Does that mean that I really need to consider their perspective on that? You know, and, and uh, no, I think that in some cases, it, you know, we can, in fact, uh, recognize that I think a fundamental epistemic dimension, where, uh, in on the one hand, you are incorporating different perspectives, and and on the other hand, you are you are trying to find something that is. Uh, transcends that based on based on uh, predefined ways of weeding out perspectives that don't make sense or don't add up and this is sometimes people use the word objective to to, uh, refer to the latter but I I try to be more precise because I think that objectivity doesn't cover much of what I'm talking about I think that there is a truth for example behind human rights there is there is some deep truth that these human rights were actually discovered, not invented, and that there are ways in which we can refine this through an understanding of our inner consciousness. And and, um, that is, I think, what should be used for coming up with a universal ethics that makes that through which uh, our social cohesion is based. But then if we're talking about um, you know, getting along with people who come from different backgrounds in life. There's an additional aspect of this that isn't just based on, you know, human rights, but it's also based on understanding their perspectives. And that's where you would use the dialectic to bring together, to incorporate those perspectives, like recognizing where they came from, what their what their thoughts and feelings are, their history with their community, and yours as well. And um, so... This is one of the things that we've been trying to work on: is identify the f- fundamental epistemic dimensions, and uh, you know. So, uh, to get, get a little more detail on that uh, object objectivity, I think I, I hear a lot of people talk about this. You know, they're saying, "Can, obje- can ethics be objective?" And I would say, you know, I don't want to say that we use the word objective because, just for example, journalists and scientists, uh, you know, or like physicists, they they aim for objectivity. But then the, the, I think the, the ultimate basis for morality and for human rights is actually intersubjective. That's not the same thing as objective. But then the, if there is a deep truth to it, because I think there can be a deep reality to it, then I would I would say, you know, it's all right to, to just say, it's, you know, it's it's reality or it's it's a, one of the things that with with human rights, what makes it true, what makes a lot of that true is that our society is based on that. These are things that, that are, you know, we get more social cohesion by recognizing these things. So it has to have that truth. It has to be, that, and uh, you know, uh, gravity is, is objectively true. Well, that's different, but it's still true. Those are still, I think those have, those both are, are truths that are, 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 are reality. One is objective, the other is intersubjective.
0: Yeah. I think a lot of people are uh, waking up to a relatively coherent way of appreciating different modalities of truth these days. And uh, that, that heartens me.
1: And well, so this is just important um, to, to use the right terminology because I hear, again, I hear people use the word objective just Mm -hmm. too broadly. And if, if I'm trying to, you know, make phenomenology more, Uh, more reliable. I do want to use the right terminology and not to say that it's objective to say that, you know, that we are going to understand each other's inner world and that's going to be objective. Well, it's not,
0: you know, there's subjective and intersubjective rigor that is analogous to the rigor we look for in objectivity.
1: Yes. Yes. Actually, though, I, uh, if we were to look at all three of those subjective, intersubjective and objective, uh, one of those three really doesn't have the rigor, and that's the, uh, the the purely subjective. There are some things there that can be a little bit, a little bit mutually understandable, and that's where artistic expression comes in. But that is a gateway to building greater uh, mutual understanding that would eventually become intersubjective. Um, so I would say that you know that that's where you know this is this is um, related to. Uh, Popper's triangle, he's got that uh, triangle of subjective, intersubjective, and objective, um, and then it also has an a- analogy to uh, Wilbur's quadrants, but that's where you would split the objective into, you know, two different, uh, uh, the objective and the inter-objective sure. there, but there's, there's you know, you can, there are different ways of splitting the uh, the, the most basic categories of epistemology. You know, we've been talking about inner and outer world. Well, that's if we were to, if that if it was two, that's what it would be. And if it was three, then it would be you know that triangle. And if it was four, well, it would be the quadrants there. You know.
0: Well, I think this um, has probably been a pretty good introduction to your thinking into the project that you're working on. Is there, is there anything else outstanding in your mind that you'd like to mention before we finish?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So um, I forgot to actually answer the question of how, how anybody can contribute to the project. And so this is actually, so I'm looking for people who might be able to help with this project of writing this book, um, of of creating these podcasts, of creating these videos to, uh, you know, uh, help people with sense-making. And uh, so we, we have parallel efforts underway with, this, the, with the book, one of which is, you know, a sense-making manual to help train sense-makers. And then there's a, another effort to write a book that, you know, people who aren't super familiar with sense-making, and they can just read it and understand it. Um, so a lot of that, I think, would also come in the form of videos and podcasts. I think there, there's a lot of different aspects of, of the book a lot of things I'm trying to bring together, and I'm really admittedly not an expert at, at all of it, you know, very much of it. But I'm trying to accurately summarize so many of these different things together. And uh, if anybody wants to help contribute in some way to books, podcasts, videos, uh, you can uh, write to me. And uh, so, so you already mentioned the uh, the website, which is enlightenedworldview.com. You can sign up for our newsletter. Um, you can also uh, send me an email, brandon at enlightenedworldview.com.
0: Terrific. Yeah, I would. Uh, I mean, this sounds like exactly the right kind of thing for people to be working on. So I encourage anybody who's curious to check it out or get in touch with Brandon, especially if they feel like they could contribute something to it.
1: All right. Thank you, Lehman.
0: <laughs> yeah. Great talking with you, Brandon. Thanks very much.